This podcast is part of the Everyday Heroes Podcast Network, the network for first responders and those who support them. Hi, I'm Abby Ellsworth. I'm a civilian interviewing law enforcement from around the country. Today I'm talking with Teresa Taylor, who is the executive director of WACOPS, which is the Washington Council of Police and Sheriffs. WACOPS is recognized as the largest, oldest, and most influential trade organization representing law enforcement professionals in Washington state. Part of our focus for today is going to be on the wide-ranging police reform legislation that went into law just about a year ago in July 2021. We'll be looking at the impact of those laws on law enforcement and the community, the changes that have been made and why, but also the changes that still need to be made. If you think that our conversation is really only of interest if you live in Washington, I can assure you that it is broader than that. It really reflects the impact of the national negative narrative on policing and how it plays out in communities around the country, how it affects law enforcement as a whole, and how it impacts individual departments and officers. If you do live in Washington, you'll be pleased to know how much Teresa and WACOPs do for law enforcement and for community. Teresa, like me, is a civilian, and we share the goal of supporting law enforcement and helping people understand what it really means to be a police officer. So, Teresa, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. We really appreciate it. So I think it would be great to have a little overview on what WACOPS is and does. Great. Happy to do that. WACOPS is a trade association, and the trade that we represent is the profession of law enforcement. We have uh, over 5,000 what we would call boots on the ground, uh, professional law enforcement officers and deputies as our members. We're an an association of associations, if you will. To be a member of WACOPS, you have to have already committed to something greater than yourself in that you're a dues-paying member of your organization's guild or union or shop, whatever labor structure that um, organization has. And then as an entire organization, you have chosen to invest in WACOPS. And we then become the voice for those members predominantly in Olympia. We rarely, Olympia being the capital of Washington state, rarely do we get involved in local or localized issues. We are primarily focused on the state, though we do have excellent working relationships with our members of Congress as well. And periodically, um, I do get the opportunity to review legislation that's being proposed at the congressional level. And our areas of interest primarily our pension protection, labor protections, and officer safety. You know, we originally connected because you heard my episode, I think it was episode 24, in which I interviewed a captain from Washington State. This was in November, and we were talking about the laws that had gone into effect in July and sort of the really negative impact those laws had. Do you want to take us back to your view of what happened? Sure. <laughs> Happy to do that. And I thought that interview was great. And I remember when we talked about it, I was, I want to say I was very impressed with the captain and his ability to articulate in very sort of layman's terms. I thought he did a really great job. From our perspective, sort of going back a little bit, and I want to be really clear from WACOP's perspective and on behalf of our members, 
we have never been opposed to meaningful reform. Our officers are always looking for more training. They're always looking to meet the needs and expectations of the community that they serve. So reform in and of itself is not a bad thing. The problem with reform in law enforcement is that it really needs to be done in a comprehensive and thoughtful way. It's a risky proposition to just take the latest hot opinion and transform the laws. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous for the professionals that conduct law enforcement. And it's dangerous for the public who are on the receiving end of whatever those reforms are. It's just important to understand that. What changed in the last couple of years has been a strong push of a national narrative related to incidences that have occurred in other locations. And the opportunity here in Washington State, I think, was seized in that the makeup of our legislature is one that tended to be, tends to be more inclined to think about things happening in other states and assuming that that's relevant to what's happening here in our state. A series of things have occurred that caused sort of this perfect storm in Washington. And so in 2021, the legislature crafted a dozen, maybe a, maybe a few more uh, pieces of legislation that rather than doing a comprehensive reform bill, which we often see in other policy areas, the legislature successfully passed about 12 pieces of reform legislation, all of which were independent bills, but all of which interacted with each other. So it was a difficult thing, I think, for the general population to cover or follow. I think it was hard for the media to fully represent the magnitude of the changes, because at any given time, a single piece of legislation might be being spoken of without any regard for its implications to another piece of legislation. So as a result, we ended up with a massive amount of reforms with very little vetting and little understanding of their implications with very short implementation timelines. The bills passed in 2021 all went into effect in July of that year, despite concerns that had been raised during the legislative process, but not resolved. There were unintended or intended consequences as a result of those reforms. And we've been dealing with them since. You know, I hadn't thought about it that way. 12 different pieces of reform. I don't know if you want to go through some of the specifics. You know, the captain that when I spoke to him, what one of the things that was kind of apparent to me was that each department was kind of interpreting this in its own way. Right. And part of what was clear is that the laws were not clear. Yeah. Right. So, for example, I think one of the biggest challenges was this idea of having to have probable cause versus reasonable suspicion. And this limited officers' ability to detain a potential suspect in determining whether or not they had committed a crime. So, that's the one that sticks out to me. Yes, that was a, and that continues to be a serious problem. So what you're referring to uh, is a piece of legislation that changed for Washington the ability of an officer to, in a Terry stop, which is 
terminology linked to a piece of federal case law, Terry versus Ohio. And so it's a it's a fundamental underpinning of how law enforcement interact with potential suspects of a crime. So when they do a Terry stop, historically, they could detain somebody under reasonable suspicion. Now, under Washington state law, they have to have probable cause. It may seem inconsequential. It might even seem to some folks that that's just, isn't that just more fair? You have to remember that our system is set up on also protecting victims of crime. Uh, not only or exclusively honoring and respecting the rights of individual citizens who might be stopped, but also recognizing that in the effort of trying to solve a crime or keep a crime from occurring or protecting or finding some, helping somebody find their perpetrator who was a victim, there's a balancing act here. And so when officers are interacting with somebody who they think may have committed a crime or be in the process of committing a crime, they need to have a reasonable amount of latitude to detain that person. And from time to time, they may actually need to use some level of force. In Washington now, they cannot use force. This is the issue. They cannot use force unless they have probable cause. Reasonable suspicion is not enough. And oftentimes, force is necessary to keep somebody in their presence long enough to get to probable cause. So this is a very, this is a linchpin, if you will, for conducting basic law enforcement. And what the legislature did in 2021 was turn that on its head. Simultaneously, in a different bill, they made it so you could not pursue people either. And so what we've seen in Washington as a result of the combination of these things is certain criminal activity has skyrocketed because those that are inclined to conduct themselves in a manner that's inconsistent with the norms of society, this plays right into their preferred way of living their lives, which is commit a crime and take off and uh, steal a car and take off. Any number of things that can go on now that officers without probable cause they cannot use the force necessary to hold that person present. And if it's a matter of a stolen car, the law is very clear. You cannot pursue a vehicle unless a certain level of crime, you have probable cause to believe a certain level of crime has been committed. And so there are all sorts of victims now in our state, whether they be retail establishments or owners of cars who've now had their vehicles stolen because we've We've broken, basically, the fundamental underpinning of how law enforcement is conducted. I do want to say I am not a police officer. So when I talk about this and when your audience, many of whom I'm sure are my members and others who should be, I would say that I'm speaking really from a policy perspective. And I, I never, ever pretend that I know what it's like to be a police officer because I do not. And um, I just have great regard and respect for what they do and do my best to articulate what's happening so that other folks like me who aren't police officers can sort of understand this in their own world, right? How does this relate to me as a citizen? These are really significant policies that were done without the proper vetting, nor giving the proper respect to the professionals that really do this job and they do it for the right reasons. So they ought to be given some credibility in the debate. 
So one of the things that really didn't occur to me, and I saw this on the news, is that people know that police cannot pursue. So the way this plays out on the street is that sometimes now when an officer tries to pull someone over, that person knows the officer cannot pursue, so they don't even pull over. Criminals know this. Anyway, I digress. I just wanted to add that because it's something that I really hadn't realized myself. So I know that we're both civilians and you, you have a grasp of this and you have a view of this that I think is helpful because you're not a law enforcement officer. You're not, you understand as best as a civilian can the impact and this is your business. And so when you talk about victims' rights and victims' safety, I mean, what we're talking about is, for example, someone breaks into my home, I give police a description, they see a person, I think this is the story the captain told, you see a person matching that description, but they're not allowed to stop them. Not, they can ask them to stop, but they cannot use force. And force could be as simple as putting handcuffs on. That's Correct. considered force. It might Ish. be. <laughs> this is part of the problem, right? Is that when you sort of think about how each department took the 2021 legislation and tried to say, how does this relate to what we do? What's our interpretation of this? One of the areas of ongoing concern and debate was this issue of what is force? So in 2022, so this legislative session, the legislature started to take on that issue of, you know, what is force? And specifically, as it related to handcuffing, the idea now being that there's something called compliant handcuffing, which is concern for us. It's not a concern for all of our member departments. It's not a concern for every one of our members. But when we look at it across the state, uh, compliant handcuffing, at what point do you begin with compliance and it becomes something else? So sometimes people might say, yeah, that's okay, dude, go ahead and handcuff me. I, I, I got nothing to hide. But at some moment in that quick interaction, they may decide to resist. They may decide now they don't like that idea. Something's crossed their minds, made them afraid. Now they're fighting. Now you've gone from a use of force that was justified because it was compliant to within a split second, it's no longer compliant. So is that officer now supposed to go, oh, okay, let me stop what I'm doing here? Uh, particularly if the person has maybe punched the officer or attempted to grab the officer's weapon. We're best served as a population when our legislature or this would be true at the local level too, but we're talking about the legislature. When the legislature tells in law what they want as opposed to what they don't want. When you try to think of every scenario that you don't want, this is going to be an iterative process that's now going to go on for years because the legislature appropriately can't be expected to know every possible scenario. And so what we asked the legislature in 21 and in 22 to do was to simply say in the law, as it related to a Terry stop, for example, that officers are allowed to use objectively reasonable force. Just say that, because that's really what you want. Now, we believe officers do use objectively reasonable force, 
But if there's a concern that they don't, then let's just say in the law that this is what we expect when conducting a Terry stop. They refused to do that in 21. They refused to do it in 22. And now we have this sort of strange situation where officers will be able to use some amount of force in a Terry stop if the person they're interacting with is about to flee or is fleeing. So all that's been experienced since last July is now more confusing. You know, in 21, we as an organization repeatedly shared with legislators and our members our concerns about a variety of things that occurred in the 2021 session. Another one was our state had decided that they didn't want a whole array of military equipment to be um, surplused to departments. And again, in what was a very poorly thought out, misunderstood, a series of hearings and ultimately final legislation, the legislature had made it so that officers could not use lethal shotguns. And subsequently, they couldn't use a shotgun type weapon for less than lethal ammunitions. And so there's an example of, I think, what the captain was alluding to as well, which was this issue of each department was kind of trying to find find their place in this and what does it mean for them? You know, we have Fish and Wildlife officers are our members as well, and they use shotguns to, you know, maybe to put down a bear. I mean, I'm, again, I'm not neither a hunter nor a police officer, but all of a sudden they're told, you can't have a shotgun of any kind. Subsequently, we had other departments that had shotgun caliber weapons that they used to project, let's say, bean bags for, again, lack of the technical term. Those now, less than lethal, were illegal, literally illegal. And we had informed our members, obviously do as you're commanded by your chain of command to do, but be aware that we believe the law is very clear. This is not in any way unclear. They have made it illegal to use anything coming out of a weapon of a certain caliber. Right. I wanted to comment on this because it took me a while to understand how it affected less than lethal options, which you mentioned. What I learned was that by removing the shotgun that shoots less lethal beanbags, foam bullets, they removed an option which allows officers to take a suspect down, get them safely handcuffed, without having to use deadly force. So this option was eliminated because the legislature didn't understand the equipment and how it's used. I do believe this was one issue that was later addressed. Correct. In February of this year, the Washington State Attorney General did issue an opinion on some of the issues, not at our request. We don't have the authority to get the Attorney General to do that. The AG presented the opinion in February, and that opinion supported the position of walk-ops. And as a result, some work was done this session, particularly around getting the military equipment issue resolved, returning shotguns and returning less than lethal tools to our officers. And then this issue of trying to define this use of what is force in a Terry stop. Well, and to kind of break down some of what you've said, and I believe you said this in our pre-interview with the limitations on use of force, the, the requirement of probable cause, you end up 
almost escalating a situation instead of de-escalating it. If you allow the officer to get control of the scene, temporarily detain someone if they are not the suspect, release them, then you have a scene that's controlled. But what you're describing is a scene that does really the opposite of the the intended law. Yes, you said it very well. I've said this many times. And again, this is from a policy perspective, but when you do not allow the police officers that have arrived on scene the ability, uh, the respect to do the job they've been trained to do, control the scene. They're observing thousands of pieces of data and information as they're approaching what they're, what's occurring. And they're assessing where their risks are, and not just for them, but for others at the scene. And so when you don't allow them to come in with that authority and control right now, what's happening, you are allowing for the escalation of the situation. And what's interesting is, in my opinion, in this change of the uh, statute where now an officer will be able to use force when the person that they're interacting with either attempts to flee or actually flees, It's ironic to me that in a state that has spent so much time talking about the importance of de-escalating, that we have created an environment where we're actually saying to the person who's been stopped by law enforcement, go ahead and escalate this. Go ahead and show that you're going to flee or in fact flee because we actually want this police officer to have to use more force than he would have or she would have needed to use had they felt it necessary to use any force at all. And that is absolutely upside down. This makes no sense. And those that think that this is an appropriate policy for our state, they are either misguided or they are intentionally manipulating the environment for all of community and law enforcement. It's, it's really counterintuitive. Well, and then to take it a step further, you know, the officer is potentially in the position of having to define what is fleeing. If they say, well, he tried to flee and then the situation is reviewed and whoever the judger is in this situation decides, oh, no, they weren't fleeing. You, that's overuse of force. You inappropriately used force. Or, you know, what is too much force? I mean, how are you supposed to, as a police officer, function? You're right. I mean, one of the things that happened in 21, along with these various other pieces of legislation, was uh, were two other pretty, well, maybe more, but at least two other really significant pieces of legislation. One was formerly known as Senate Bill 5051. We call that the decertification bill. It did do other things besides exclusively uh, revamp the Criminal Justice Training Commission's process for decertifying. They've always had the ability to both certify officers and decertify officers. We've never opposed the CJTC having a appropriate fair, transparent process for decertification. That's not, I've never met a WACOPS member that said, wow, I really want to work with somebody who's a liability for me. I mean, that, that I've never heard that. 
on its face, we do not disagree that there needs to be an appropriate process. So they passed a bill that re basically reconstituted, if you will, the commission, which are the people that make decisions for the Criminal Justice Training Commission. And a big piece of that is to stand up a process by which they can investigate officers, even if the, even if the department the officer worked for either did not believe there was an investigation warranted or conducted and completed their own investigation. The Criminal Justice Training Commission can now, upon its own accord, or based on the results of an internal investigation, choose to investigate and have a hearing as to whether they want to suspend or revoke an officer's certification. And these are very good examples of the sort of gray area. If there was an interaction between an officer and a member of the public, and that member of the public needed to be detained to determine uh, whether or not they were committing a crime or had committed a crime. Ironically, this, let's just assume for this scenario, this person actually isn't the person they ultimately want. But because the person doesn't cooperate, and we've given all the power to that person now, so they can choose to cooperate or not cooperate, they can choose to, you know, be on the edge of sort of, you know, am I going to flee? Am I not going to flee? You know, officers are trained in the academy to observe things that you and I may not pick up on. And whether or not there's a body camera or not, and dependent upon the angle of the body camera, there's also the very real possibility that the camera itself wouldn't see the particular body movement of this person that might lead a trained professional to believe this is a precursor to a flea. This guy's going to leave. Maybe the guy's watching something off to the side. Maybe he clenches his fists or moves his body like he's going to get into a runner's position. I mean, I don't know. Again, I'm not in these scenarios, but these are things I've been told. And now we're creating a scenario where this person who might have been able to have just been cut loose here any minute, but because the officer couldn't control the scene, this becomes something completely different. Then it turns out that this isn't the person they want. And now there's a big to do because people presume there were all sorts of other motivations uh, behind why this person was stopped in the first place and whether or not, you know, there's there's some past history or who knows what the argument might be. But even if the officer's department did not believe there was any wrongdoing, the Criminal Justice Training Commission could decide to conduct its own investigation and then potentially suspend or decertify that officer. One of the things that happened this session in 2022 in their work to try to define what use of force was, they've now introduced a new terminology. So there's two words. One word is immediate and one word is imminent. And imminent is a little, a little further out than immediate. And now in Washington state, we've introduced both terms. And so if you, you can use deadly force, if you're in danger or someone else is in danger and that threat is immediate, meaning basically in layman's terms, it's like you have to actually see the weapon and know this is about to be fired at you. For example, it could also be a knife. I mean, there's a lot of different weapons, but let's just say you have to wait until the gun is visible. Um, if it's imminent, 
you know, the failure to put your hands up, failure to show what's in your hands, failure to follow the lawful commands of a police officer, body language, a lot of different things can fall into this. Now you can't, you have to, that's okay if the threat is imminent, if it's not going to be a deadly force encounter, but if, if it's going to be a deadly force encounter, you ha- it has to be immediate. We don't know what it means, really, because some of this is going to unfortunately have to play out in the courts. Historically, the courts have actually treated the two words as the same and not, there doesn't seem to be a history of sort of mincing those words. But unfortunately, because Washington state's legislature has chosen to use the two words in basically the same piece of legislation, it begs the question, did they intend something different? So we have a lot of confusion and a lot of unknowns. We'll have to see how it plays out. What we all should want and what all voters should want is for our legislature to understand the importance of getting it right and not just getting it done, regardless of the pressure that legislators may have felt from some sections of community. This is just too important to get wrong. And we've already seen the fallout. I know there were some issues also around going hands-on with persons in mental crisis. Was anything done to address that? Unfortunately, again, we don't really think they addressed the lion's share of the problem. They did make it clear that when it's an involuntary commitment, uh, that officers can use necessary force to help that person get to the help they need. But 99% of the interactions law enforcement have with folks in mental crisis, vast majority of those interactions would not elevate to an involuntary commitment. And so we still have uh, an ongoing problem. It goes on and on. And that's what I mean by by how interwoven these bills are. People did not, I don't think, have any idea. I look at it sort of as a web. Well, and it seems that the goal is more to be punitive of police officers than it is to help the public. That is how it feels. Yeah. And when you talk about imminent versus immediate, I can tell you my fear is that one of the results is we're going to have officers who lose their lives because they're not going to be able to trust their instincts. They're not going to be able to, they're going to second guess or they're just not going to respond to calls. Go ahead. I think all of the, I think all of those scenarios are legitimate concerns. I know that it has really amazed me how despite the confusion, despite the increased risk, our members remain absolutely committed to going to every 911 call that they're sent to. They are not only at personal physical risk, their very liberty is at risk for doing the job that they, we had a commitment, right, as a community, as a society. We say to our police officers, we're going to vet you carefully. We're going to make sure you're really qualified for this job. We're going to put you through rigorous training. We're going, and at the end of this, we're going to have an agreement. And that agreement is that we're going to respect you. We're going to follow your lawful order. And in the unlikely but possible scenario where other information unknown to you at the time becomes known, we're going to stand by you because it's the risks we take as a society when we agree that we need to have law and order, we need to have police officers. And every citizen 
has the ability in the moment that they, and rarely do citizens actually interact with law enforcement, um, but when you're told to do something by a police officer, you have a decision to make. Am I going to do what I'm told to do? And I would say you should. And if there's any issue later, take it up later. But in the moment, do as you're directed to do. And I think all of these really tragic scenarios that we see play out on television and across the country, uh, I can't think of one that would have ended as it did had the person listened to and followed the lawful order of a police officer. I know there are some that will say, well, it's not lawful. They didn't have the authority. I'm not here to debate those issues. But what I would say is if an officer tells me to do something, I'm going to do it. And if I believe there's been a violation of my rights, I can take that up later. We have got to get back to a place where we're not all trying to litigate our case on the street corner with police officers who are simply there doing what they've been directed to do. Exactly. That is exactly right. And the other thing is, you know, you've, as a police officer, if you're in this situation and you're making split second decisions and then you have to, in your mind, say, what if this is going to be viewed as unnecessary and now I'm out of a job, now I'm possibly in jail, I mean, or in prison, it's... All those things have to go through their minds. I mean, it may not be going through their minds yet, but as these cases develop and as they see their brothers and sisters in blue and green uh, on the TV news and in front of court systems, and I, it will it has to play a factor in their in their decision making. For police officers, they put themselves in a job every day in which the vast majority of the variables are out of their control. All they can depend on is their excellent training, their self-confidence in their own decision-making, and a faith and belief that if they do everything correctly and they use their very best judgment, that they are going to be supported. We do have a system that does step up it does take action where needed and necessary, but we should not be breaking the entire criminal justice system and, and breaking the uh, commitments of our agreement with those that step into the breach because of a sensationalistic and probably very rare circumstance. Should those be noted? Sure. Should those people be held accountable? Absolutely. But we have twisted this from officers are doing their job to officers are immediately suspect. And that is, that is a slippery slope that we are well on our way down. And it isn't me just, you know, speaking in sensationalistic terms. This is a fact and we better do something to stop the fall. Right. So what can be done? Well, I think that, you know, we always have the legislature, they come back every year, they work all interim. We are certainly uh, working hard to uh, do a better job of vetting candidates that are running for the legislature. Uh, you know, we have got to find, we've got to get to a place where, and it really, this is not a partisan issue. What we need are legislators in every single district, in every single race, to recommit to themselves what they want in their communities. And they have to be willing to stand up and speak that in the legislative process. And 
what we've heard and saw is that there was a lot of legislators who just basically put their head down and uh, ducked down from the from the arguments going on and just didn't want to rock the boat. Um, I think that that's embarrassing. And I think the legislature should be embarrassed by that. Absolutely, they should be there to defend and protect the interests of their districts. But when every legislator takes on the monocle of a single legislator who has a single specific viewpoint, you've abdicated your responsibility to the voters in your district who may have a very different life and lived experience that is also valued and important and should be a part of the debate. Uh, I think that every legislator should be committed to going on ride-alongs with law enforcement. You cannot be making these laws. You cannot be telling law enforcement what to do if you've never gone on a ride-along. Totally agree. Uh, In fact, in our candidate questionnaire, we ask them now um, if they've been on a ride-along and how long ago it was. In In our view, we think every legislator or candidate for office should have been on a ride-along within the last three years. Anything older than that, they're not really seeing what's happening on the streets and it's not really relevant. It's almost a totally different world. So totally agree with you. Um, we, we're actively working to make that message known, but would definitely encourage others who have the ear of a legislator or know a candidate to say, hey, you need to do a ride-along. I just, I, I don't think you can understand the job any other way. So, In addition to that, obviously, as the largest representative of the rank-and-file police in our state, and when I say that, I do want to also note that we have many lieutenants and captains and some chiefs and some sheriffs in our membership as well. Um, but fundamentally, right, one of our three legs of our stool is labor protections. And so um, our our real interest is in making sure that officers are protected in their labor rights and that we don't have legislation that erodes that. And all of these bills have, to some degree, impacted or eroded the labor rights of this this profession. We shouldn't be a society that's charging an officer every time they do their do their job. And again, we all as citizens have the responsibility to follow a lawful order. Well, and part of what I think is happening is people don't people no longer believe they have to follow a police officer's orders. Somehow we have forgotten that part of a lawful society is when a police officer tells you to do something, you do it. I understand there have been people who have complied and who have had a bad experience with some police officers. I understand these things happen, but more often than not, a situation goes sideways when there is a lack of compliance, which you've already said. If we wanted to take these, the intention of the current reforms and work toward the solution, not the... Legislate what you want, don't legislate what you don't want. Right. And the other piece of this is that law enforcement's never invited to the table. They're making... Yes, they are, or no, they're not. So this is a tricky one. Um, you know, as you know, we we definitely have access to legislators. 
there's no question. Um, I can call uh, any you know leader in any caucus and 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 talk with them. So it's a misnomer to say we're not invited to the table. What was different this time is there was no table. They literally took these bills. These all were crafted by um, activists. For example, you'll see similar language in Washington state legislation. You'll see the same language pop up in California or Minnesota. Or So it isn't that some legislator sat down with a member of their community and said, let's craft this. You know, what would this look like? These are all uh, pieces of legislation that have been well crafted and written by well-funded organizations. The ACLU is one example, but I don't want to pick on them. There's others. And so these came to the legislators largely already written. These were packaged and presented, and certain legislators signed on to them and became the sponsor, the primes, of these pieces of legislation. But in most cases, those legislators had little, if anything, to do with the crafting of the language. I was at a conference in California last summer and was just stunned to listen to them relating information about a similar decertification bill and the language was verbatim. So so I say that, I just say that to point out that we do have an opportunity to have a voice. We certainly testify in hearings and we meet with legislators privately, but the legislature did not use what I think has been one of Washington's great pride and joy approaches on big reforms, which is to bring all of the affected parties together. Everybody's not going to get everything they want, but at least you have a, a real opportunity to learn from each other and figure out if there's another way to solve that problem. And there just wasn't an opportunity for that. They just, they did not want that. So I guess this is a good way to segue to what you do, what WACOPS does for law enforcement. I mean, we've talked about the issues. T tell me about your job. Like, <laughs> what, 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 you know, you've got membership. We want them to know how hard you work for them. So let's tell them how hard do you work for them? Well, it's a job I love. I say all the time, every time I get to talk to our members, it is a tremendous honor. I've been in public policy work all of my career, really. Of all of the opportunities I've had, this has been by far the most rewarding. The primary thing we do is work with legislators and stay available to them for discussions about new ideas, old ideas, changing legislation. Any individual department or certainly any individual labor union guild shop is not in a position to be able to do that work or to connect those dots. Uh, so that is probably our fundamental, most important thing we're able to do is to bring sort of the connectivity of all of these different things, use our knowledge and experience to influence and affect change. One thing you reminded me of when you talked about training in our pre-interview, you the one thing that you said that I didn't know is that departments can apply for funds to offset the cost of training and the money goes to the CJTC to provide the training. So no one is providing money to the department. Did and I we get that changed right? the, Yes, but we've changed that. Okay. So okay. Um, we were able to, Walk Hops was able to, at the end of last session, uh, we were having 
a conversation with a legislator that we have a great relationship with, happens to uh, be a Democrat. Um, so I'm trying to make it clear, we're not partisan. We like anybody who's willing to work with us and willing to do the work. Uh, and I mentioned that I was concerned that there's all this training that has to get done and departments are already now well understaffed. Many of our members are working many mandatory overtime shifts. There's no, there's no escape valve here. I mean, they've got to send somebody to training and yet nobody's backfilling. Nobody's providing the department with money to pay that overtime that's now going to be required to send somebody for training. So we were able to get this legislator to work with us and get a budget proviso. And I think it was around $6 million that we were able to get. We tied it to each piece of previously past legislation. And now departments are going to be able to go directly to WASPIC, which is the Washington Association of Sheriffs and Police Chiefs, and apply for money that will go back to the department, not to the municipality or to the county. It'll go to the department and that will help them to fund the overtime expenses and other costs associated with training. To my knowledge, there has never been a budget proviso that gave money directly to a police department. A super uh, awesome thing that we were able to do that. And, and again, it's because we were in the right place at the right time. That's great. I mean, yeah, they don't think about, I think it's really important that you can't pull officers off the street for this training because there aren't enough officers on the street. That is a real concern. It's not only a concern for the public, and I don't want to diminish how important it is to have adequate staffing for public safety. It's an officer safety problem. There have to be a certain number of police officers available because it's most calls anymore require that you have backup. So you have to have some basic minimum staffings. We're getting to a point where I think we may need to have some mandates uh, that hold counties and cities accountable uh, to protect the officers themselves. Well, and you, you also talk about officer wellness. If you're working mandatory overtime every week, you're not taking care of yourself, you are not getting your best officer responding to that scene. That is correct. And it's a big concern. I mean, it's a concern anyway. Uh, we've certainly done a lot of work around the area of wellness. Uh, I know there are many legislators that have done different pieces of legislation that we've been involved in to, to offer some financial support and some access to trainings related to it. We were successful Three years ago, WACOPS was in getting the very first recognition of a predisposed injury being PTSD for police officers. Firefighters have had some uh, presumed occupational injuries in the past, but PTSD was the first one we were able to get as a presumed occupational injury for police officers. And since then, we've gotten another presumed occupational injury. But again, if not for an organization like WACOPS, if our members would not be able to achieve these things, they wouldn't have these various improvements in their work environment or access to services because there wouldn't be an entity watching for those opportunities. Uh, so we're really proud of that. I know you did something uh, in the area of pensions. What did you do there? So uh, again, another great example of why having an organization like Law Cops matters. 
and we've been working on a pension improvement since its inception. And about three years ago, we were able to make some movement to put some money into an account. The legislature had not met its obligation to deposit funds into that account. So about three years ago, we worked with the legislature to put some money into that account. The Washington State Investment Board invests the pension dollars, and the market had been so productive that there was a significant amount of funds sitting there that had not been authorized for a benefit improvement. But we were able to be successful to do that. And then we saw a series of tea leaves that led us to believe that this year, 2022, was the year to go after an actual pension improvement for our members. And so we are thrilled that we were able to get a unanimous vote out of both the House and the Senate. There was not one no vote. And it actually benefits those who are currently in the system, but those who've also retired. And then another thing I saw on your website that I wanted to touch on is a benevolent fund that seems to be for those injured in the line of duty. Is that correct? So the reason that stood out to me is that I recently did an interview with John J. Wiley, who's with the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. He was injured on the job uh, in 1992 at the age of 33, forced to retire he got part of his pension, but it was his career. It was his vocation. I'm always thinking about line of duty deaths. Never understood the impact on an officer injured on the job and what happens to them. Yeah, I, so, love, I love that you brought that up. Um, and this is something that I, I'm always trying to get my hands around, too, because you hear about officers who are killed. But we almost never hear about officers who are injured. And when you think about the weeks and months of rioting that took place in our nation, many officers were badly injured in those ongoing events. And yet there was almost no discussion about that. And there's very little follow-up or information that you can get about, you know, What's the status of those folks? Were they required to leave their employment? Are they still on, you know, injury uh, leave? I mean, what what is the status of that? So we do have a benevolent fund. It is uh, not a formalized charity, but it is an account that we put funds into for line of duty death or non line of duty death. We don't have enough of a bankroll to uh, provide support for those that are injured. And I wish we could. And at some point, maybe we will. And it's not even it's always a catastrophic injury. It's not like it, right. you're paralyzed. If you can't use your hand, you can't be a police officer. Correct. You can't hold a weapon. You can't uh, detain a suspect. That's a very serious problem. And I think, you know, where we have to start is to avoid the injuries to begin with, right? So we, we have got to get to a place where our legislators need to show in their actions that they understand the preciousness of our police officers. You mentioned that you had been doing this kind of work in different areas for many years. You said this was the most rewarding. So what is it, what drew you to working with law enforcement and why is this the most rewarding? It's interesting. Um, it isn't completely random. I was married to a police officer for um, almost 30 years, and we had 
actually recently divorced. And I have a child who is now in law enforcement as well. So there's, uh, I have a long history of being um, in a family that was impacted by the profession. And I got here and had no idea. I had no idea that the wheels were about to come off of the law enforcement train and I was going to be in some of the most intense meetings, some of the most upsetting, frustrating interactions with uh, the public and with elected officials, uh, challenging every one of my best skill sets. It has been a whirlwind. That's why it's so rewarding. I feel like I've really been able to directly and positively affect a profession that is so essential to our society. Truly love it. And I think we've been able to do a lot of really, really important things. Well, and you said, you know, of law enforcement that they are essential. And I will add that they are misunderstood and undervalued, which is part of what drives me in continuing to tell these stories. You know, I appreciate that you say that, and, and I think there's a lot of folks that feel that way. Poll after poll after poll says that the public values law enforcement. And so what's ironic here is we're allowing a group of folks who, who may have some valid viewpoints, but they are a very small, very myopic group who are literally the tail wagging the dog on this thing. And now's the time. People need to be heard. They need to speak up. They need to contact their council members. They need to contact their mayors, their uh, county execs. They need to contact their legislators. And they don't have to necessarily have a whole pre-planned thing. They just need to say, I'm a citizen and I need to feel safe in my community, and I disapprove of the way you've handled law enforcement reform. Well, and I think for your average person, I mean, I have some, I've been interviewing law enforcement for 12 years and have an understanding of it. I'm doing my best to understand these laws and the impact, and I'm, I'm invested in knowing. I don't see how your average person really can take the time or wrap their minds around what's going on. In broad strokes, how far away are we from fixing it? But I would say that we're very far from solving them because we don't currently have a legislature that fully takes responsibility for what they've done and does not seem to have a uh, desire to do meaningful change. And I say that based on this session's experience, right? When you try to now tweak words like, well, uh, may flee or attempting to flee or actually fleeing, this is not problem solving, right? This is saying we did something and isn't this great, but the reality is they really have not done what they needed to do. Had they been willing to do what we asked, which was say that an officer may use objectively reasonable force, I would have a more optimistic view about our legislature's intentions and their desire to fix what they've broken. So I think we're fairly far. We're in a weird timing, though, because there's a, an election coming up. And so what happens in November may move the needle closer to uh, a positive desire to fix some of what's broken. Um, if the needle doesn't move and we end up with a legislature that remains very far apart, I don't think they'll do anything more on this, or at least not anything of any significance. 
at the end of the day, we are about problem solving, uh, but we are never going to sell the profession down the river. Our commitment is to our members and uh, we are here for them and we will take the next correct step because it's the right thing for the profession. To those in my audience who are not members of WACOPS right now, how do they join? What would you like to say to them? Uh, for those organizations that have not made the investment to be a part of WACOPS or maybe were members of WACOPS at one other time, uh, I would encourage you as a listener to talk to your guild leadership. Ask them why you're not invested in supporting the good work of WACOPS and and invite us in to have a discussion. You know, I love to sit around and have coffee with our non-member organizations and bring them up to speed on uh, what's going on and our role in that and how important it is that every time I can go to a legislator and tell them that, you know, your constituents are my members, that goes a long way. And so um, I would encourage our non-member organizations to see if they're open to having a conversation. There's no pressure, but you can't put a price on the quality of the work that WACOPS is able to do on behalf of law enforcement. Well, I'm certainly glad we have you at the helm of this. I appreciate what you're doing. And I'm glad someone who understands law enforcement has this role. Thank you. If you'd like to know more about WACOPS, or if you would like to connect with Teresa, I will put all that information in the episode notes. I always include my email in the episode notes, and I'm always happy to hear from you. Thanks for listening.